Welcome back, everybody. The next session will look at the administration and system issues when considering the valuation exemption criteria for defined contribution funds. Certainly a motive in doing so is the objective of reducing the cost of administering and managing DC arrangements. So I guess the key question is, do we believe that we can decrease the cost of managing DC arrangements if actuarial input is in fact reduced? I know this is a huge issue for the actuarial profession and would therefore like to encourage active participation in this particular session. Here to help us debate this issue, and I really would uh, like the session to be one that is debated, um, is Mia Geringer. Mir is Solfco's founding director. Solfco is a niche consulting firm that provides actuarial services, including system implementations, data reconstruction, and forensic analysis. Mir's career includes pensions, life insurance, and reinsurance arrangements, um, as well as experience in those arrangements. She approached the Actuarial Society in 2017 to form ASSA's Systems and Technology Committee, a committee which is now up and running. Please provide a warm round of applause to Mir. Thank you. Uh, thanks, thanks, Costa. Um, morning, everybody. Um, yes, so uh, thank you for this time to actually listen to me because this, this is quite a bit of a, of a hot topic, I think. Um, so from my, I'm just going to start. So from my agenda, I quickly want to give you an introduction. Why am I here? Why am I talking to you about it? Then take you through very briefly the insurance side and their systems and data and how they're struggling. And then let's look at the retirement fund industry and what we as a committee have picked up there. The history, how did we get here, the result, what's happening because of the history, the future, how we see it, and then a short conclusion. But yes, active, active participation, please. Um, as you can see, I'm my only panel, <laughs> so there's nobody else here. My alter ego did join me today, so let's see how that goes. Okay, as an introduction, yes, Solfco is a niche actuarial firm. We work in basically all the fields. The main part of what we do are system implementation kind of projects. It's what we like to do. We like to fix people's problems for them. Um, we've done a huge amount of fund reconstructions in the pension fund and in the life space. So I almost want to say we clear data reserves. It's kind of what we like to do. Because of this, I approached ASA last year to see if we can't come up with some kind of a committee that looked at these kind of issues. Because in the system space, there's so much money being spent wasted from what we've seen. Um, and somehow the, the actual profession kind of, in my opinion, needs to catch up to that. Uh, this, this committee actually moved quite quickly from a forum to a committee, so I'm quite happy about that. We are represented by all the fields, so we have live people on the committee, we have short-term banking, not health yet, Barry did promise me somebody. We have actuaries, we have students, we have evaluators, so I think it's a very nice mix. And the committees, I really enjoy it because the discussions are actually quite nice. For me, I know it's not for everybody, but for us it's nice. I need to put a disclaimer in here, I'm not a pensions evaluator by choice. Um, good luck to all of you, <laughs> but no, it's not something for me. I like the, the system part of things, I like fixing data, so I think that's where I will stick. Before we start, I need you 
to be a little bit creative today. I had a friend who used to say, to be an actuary, you are actually a very creative person because to solve a mathematical problem, you are creative. So I need you to put that creativity hat on today and let's think outside of the box. We can, I believe. Two definitions that I want to bring to your attention. This is the best definition of an actuary we could find. An actuary is a professional who applies analytical, statistical, mathematical, and strategic thinking skills to value, bring greater understanding, and improve decision-making to certain future events. So that's the best definition we could find. So we are all actuaries. We should like risk. We want to minimize risk. We do risk management. This is what we are trained to do. Operational risk is another one that features in the presentation. So what is operational risk? This is more defined on the insurance space. Operational risk is a risk of loss arising from inadequate or failed internal processes, people, and systems. And systems. It's in the definition. Or from external events. So these two definitions are quite important for me. Because if we are looking at risk management, surely we should include operational risk. Very briefly, please bear with me. I know this is not a pensions topic. In the insurance space, what we've seen. So we've got IFRA 17 and we've got SAM. IFRA 17 is at the moment demanding a lot of actuarial input, but not typically necessarily system related, but there's so much money currently being spent. So this is kind of where the committee said we need to do something. We need to actually be somehow involved. So there's a lot of money being spent. SAM to me is kind of pushing the actuary in the direction of, look, you are ultimately responsible. So this is happening in the insurance space. Problems that we've picked up, unfortunately, actuarial involvement is still very limited when people pick a system. So they will not typically actually involve the actuary. Um, this, there is absolutely no governance in the IT space, none at all. So anybody can develop a system, um, you don't need experience, you don't need to be trained. There's, no, there's nothing that says this is a developer. You can actually, it's self-taught. Minimum timelines, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, no minimum timelines, no penalties for system implementations. This is quite an important problem for the insurance uh, companies because a system implementation is a very expensive exercise. It actually uses your resources, your day-to-day -day resources. So if an implementation takes longer than usual, your day-to-day -day business can't continue as usual. So it, and there's absolutely nothing that says, look, you need to meet the timeline. Somebody's going to get penalized. It doesn't happen in that space. Like I said, development with no experience is quite common. Um, unfortunately, it happens, but then you have to explain a clawback to some of these people who've never even heard of an insurance policy. So it's a very difficult environment. No standard for system audited. Um, the audit processes that I've seen really look at can you steal the money? So it's can you actually pay yourself? That's really the only audit function that happens in this space. We then had a look, sorry, this is my last slide on insurance. We then had a look, what, what's happening in this kind of a gray area? And can we as a society do something to minimize the risk in this gray area? So typically, you have requirements and you have your output. This is where the actuary is super comfortable. And I must say apologies for the people who've seen this slide before in the live conference. But yes, so you've got the two, we've got requirements, which is typically your pricing actuary. And on the output, you've got your evaluator. And in the middle, something happens. So uh, to give you an example of a product development, it'll come from the one side, 
somebody says it's a good idea, it starts there, we then say it should go to a business analyst. The business analyst is an important person because this person will document it. So this person will take your idea and put it into a spec which is, can then be used by a developer. So, uh, and we've seen projects where actuarial actually jump this and they just go straight to the developer, which is a problem, because then your documentation is lost. After the developer, it should go to testers. It's also a space that I'm very comfortable in. We do a lot of testing. After that, we hope it goes back to the developers, back and forth, before it goes to the live system. And funnily enough, after the live system, sometimes the brokers want a different color or an extra button that happens actually after it's gone live already. Hopefully, it goes back to the business analyst to actually put it in the spec and make sure it's clear to go back to development. Hopefully, it flows like that. After all of that, it goes to corporate actuarial. So corporate actuarial doesn't really know what's going on in this gray space. They get it at the end. There's the data. Let's try and make sense of it. So you should have a spec. So you see there's something going on there. This is my last slide on insurance. I try to translate this to this industry, and it looks like this. And I actually wanted to color the administrator like in a little black box. So you have trustees. Yes, there are rules. Maybe we can say the rules are a little bit like a spec that you sign off that goes to the administrator. But there's no testing there. Did you know that there's no testing there? I have never tested a pension system in my 11 years of testing, ever. So why is it like this? So we, and we debated it in the committee. What happened? Why, why are we in this space? What happened? We've concluded that it has to do with a DBDC change. And I think you'll agree with me. So with a DB, you had a sponsor. And this sponsor, he's super worried about the data. He's worried, he has a responsibility. If something is wrong, he's gonna to have to top it up. So there's a, there's a responsibility there. But on the DC side, we've got trustees. Are they responsible? Do they take the responsibility? Are they really responsible? And I don't know, I'm asking. I've seen the dynamic situation, but the trustees are fighting that. So I, I don't know if they're gonna get fined. Are they really responsible? And then we went through this phase of audit exempt because it's fine, it's a DC fund. Why do you need to audit it? It's fine. So it's like a unit trust, isn't it? So this is where we are. So what happened because of all of this? And then I had a look and it's very interesting for me. I'm sure it's not news to you, but it's very interesting for me. IT, for me, moved faster in all other fields except this one. The systems that's being used in the pension fund industry are ancient. There's, no one is spending money on innovation. There's a little bit of innovation, but it's not big. It's not happening in this industry. It's happening everywhere else, not here. This us versus them. I've got a lot of examples. Us and them. Us, the actuaries, them, the admin. There's a little bit of a war going on, which I don't understand. So, and I see people are laughing, but it's actually very serious. So one, I've got so many examples. We started a project with an administrator. We walked in, and this administrator was so hostile towards us. Now, you see, I'm not a pension evaluator. 
I walked out and I said to the team, look, just relax. They're going to love us after a week. And they did. But they're not used to working with actuaries. It's us, them situation. I was at a board meeting not so long ago where the administrator literally kicked the evaluator out because the evaluator was not allowed to see the admin report. It's a true story. It's, I, I couldn't believe it. What do you say to something like that? I worked on a project where part of the project was to verify that the surplus was allocated correctly to the members. So I went to the evaluator. I said, just give me the list so that I can verify it's working correctly. I couldn't get it. Eventually, I went to admin, and I got this email. And it was a one-liner email that said, allocate to the members 9.666 long percentage like this. And I thought, wow, if I can't figure it out, how's admin supposed to figure it out? Who tested it? Who made sure it was working? So this us versus them war that's going on, is utter, utter, it's weird. For me, responsibility is lost. Nobody's taking responsibility for the admin, certainly not us. I think in this room, and I've spoken to a lot of you, there's a fear of losing your job, losing the client, being sued if you actually highlight these issues. So I went to ASA. ASA says, where the actuary has reservations about the data provided for the valuation, these should be noted. Great. Let's note it. Section 13, to me, that reads, what's in your service level agreement? What's your service level agreement? What's in your service level agreement? There's nothing about this is actually your responsibility. To me, look, I'm not an evaluator. Please disagree with me. <laughs> this reliance on auditors and they're not is also weird for me. So I have a couple of evaluators say to me, look, Mia, if you, if you look at a pension fund, always assume the financials are wrong. Okay? You agree with me? Yet we are saying... We can have a DC fund valuation exemption because it went through the auditors. We are relying on the auditors, but we also don't want to. So I don't, it's, it's, I don't understand it. Yes, international standard on insurance engagements. I've seen a company, and I won't disclose it, who's done this, who went through this process. It's not foolproof. It's still not, there's no responsibility being given to anybody in this. It's good. You should check your processes, and I think this is something good to do, but it's not foolproof. So this is what's happening. These are the total DC reserves I found from 2005 to 2016. DC reserves. So these are unit trusts. Whose money is this? I'm saying, if it, so I looked. I can't see what the data reserves are. But you can see how it's increasing if I just assume 2% data reserve, 2% of your funds. 2% data reserves, you can see it's increasing. This is a lot of money. Now I want you, because for me this was surprising, so I want to, to, to hear what you have to say. We're going to do a little bit of an exercise, and we're going to vote on what you think the expenses increased by. If we look at 94, I started at 94. 2005 and 2016, I've got a couple of numbers, and then I want you to vote on those. And then let's see if we can complete this table. We're going to start with administration fees. 
then expenses incurred in, in, um, in managing investments, and then actuarial fees. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. So what do you think the administration fees in 2005 were? I'll give you the number for, for 99. Uh, 283 million. It's not a tough question. It's an ABC. <laughs> One answer is correct. I can tell you that. Ah, oh, wow, yes. A. A is correct. 113. That's what it went up with in 2005. What do you think happened in 2016? This is in million. Yes. 4.7. Now let's, let's look at expenses incurred in managing investments. If we started with 216 million, 94, what do you think happened in 2005? See, this one is not going so quickly. <laughs> ah, you're debating BC. The correct answer is 1.4, so that's B. So it jumped from 216 million to 1.4 billion, 2005. 2016, <coughs> what do you think happened in 2016? Yes, you guessed right, the highest, 7.6 Let's look at actuarial fees. That's our starting value, starting at 18 million, 94. <laughs> yeah, see, we, we divide it. Right answer is A, 48, so it went from 18 to 48. What do you think happened in 2016? Don't cheat, Marius, you guys know the answer. <laughs> okay, surprisingly enough, B is the correct answer. Yes, <laughs> I did go up a bit. So let's look at the slide, thanks Andrew. So if we complete the table, that's what it looks like. 283 to 1 billion to 4 billion, 200 million to 1.4 billion to 7.6, 18 million, 48 to 217. So that's kind of what it looks like. The increases, so this is just, it went up four times administration fees, 94 to 2004. I did this because I needed to understand what's going on. Why are we saying, let's push out the actuary to decrease the fees? Let's decrease the cost. So that's what's going on. I put it in a slide. As you can see, flatlining the actuarial fee. I've got consulting fees in there as well. Consulting fees actually include investment fees as well. There's a little bit of investment fees in there, but you can see we're flatlining. So I had a look. Something happened 94 to 2004. 2005 um, statements are actually different to the 2004 statements. 2005 is the first time we see the split between DC and, and DB reserves. So the valuation, uh, the, the reports from the FSB before that looks a little bit different. And it's also categorized, it says administration fee, investment advisor fees, which is included in the expense part of the report. After 94, it's moved out and it's moved into investment income, sort of a net of effect. So it's, it's not seen as part of expenses. It's very interesting for me. I didn't know it. Great work on cheap and cheap work on great. And this is another quote I like. 
price is what you pay and value is what you get. And what value are we giving? What value are we giving? So what value can we add? So if we say that the industry is happy to pay, and I'm not saying they shouldn't, but they're happy to pay $7 billion in investment fees, why are we trying to decrease the actuarial fees? Is it, is it about value? What value are we adding? The reality, though, in DC funds, the systems are not tested. And I'm saying that, and people can disagree with me, but I've never been asked to test a pension fund system, ever. Limited validations, this is such a big problem. So these systems don't have validations in. So the person sitting in admin can do whatever they want. They can capture a transfer in as a negative value. They can capture a member information without putting in an ID or a surname. There's no validations in these systems. And it's actually quite an easy thing to do. Timing the lace. By the time you pick up an error, it's three years later, you're trying to fix it. It's just a mess. And then it takes forever and it increases the cost. And yes, it's not working. No data migration. So this, the committee finds extremely interesting. Because if you speak to any life actuary, they don't understand it. How can you have no data migrations? You can move from one administrator to the next and just bring across a closing balance. Now, that, that is very unusual in all the other fields. You should take over the transactional history. It's doable. It can be done. It's done everywhere else, except here. I find these evaluations to be a lot of work. Because of this, it's very difficult. Plus, then you sit with financials that don't tie up to the system or the data and you think they're wrong. And it's just a lot of work. So I hear you. Maybe if this was working, we could say, let's move the actuary out. It's not going to decrease the fees as we've seen. But it's not working. What is the perceived value? What is the value? We are happy to pay the high investment fees. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't. But people don't want to pay for actuarial fees. So my problem with this is, because of the projects that we've done, because of everything that I've seen, if you have a system that's not tested, for example, you can have rules that says, employer pays the expense contributions, and the system actually deducts the expense contributions from the members, because nobody looked at it. So what investment return are you getting? What are you actually getting? There is no system, again, disagree with me, no pension system that can handle risk benefits correctly. So if you have members who have a salary increase, they haven't gone for their medicals, they are actually paying too much for their risk benefits. So what return are they getting? We're happy to pay the investment manager because we're chasing high returns, but what is the net return? What is the net return if admin is not working? So what is the real value? And I'm sorry, but what about the members? Are the members aware of this, that they're actually not getting the return? There's so many examples of things that we've seen where the return just get lost. Another example is, 
You exit the fund, 28 Feb, your premium comes in 7 March. Your premium, see I'm also using the word premium. The contribution comes in 7 March. Is the member getting that last contribution? How do you know? How do you know? Because if that contribution is lost, what return is this person getting? I have lots of examples. I've been doing this for 11 years. So this is our future. DC fund valuation exemptions. Is that what we're saying? With the current systems, because it's going to lower the actuarial cost. And section 14s, yes, I hear you. You think because the actuary is involved and it's not a valuation exempt file, section 14s are taking long. Come talk to me, I'll show you some section 14s. Happy to have and to share the information with you. Relying on auditors, if we want to exempt the valuation, we're saying, yes, the financials are fine. That's what we're saying. And yet, you're saying to me, your first point of entry is the, the financials are wrong. And here we're saying, no, it's fine. My biggest thing is, do the trustees understand this? Do they? I think not. And I don't want to go into this move of umbrellas, because again, there is no system that can handle umbrellas in its current form. And I'm saying that with a lot of confidence. You can come talk to me. There is no system. Can we change the future? Please, can we change the future? <laughs> I don't know. I want to say, can we get this industry in line technology-wise with the rest of the world? Can we do something? I don't know. I'm saying there should be more actuarial involvement, not less. I've shown you the slide of the insurance guys. These guys are everywhere. The actuaries involved everywhere. They even want to do development. But what are we doing? We need more innovation in this industry. I can't change it. You can change it. I'm not a evaluator. It needs to come from this room. If it's not going to come from this room, where is it going to come from? Better systems. Better systems. These systems are old. We need better systems. We need lower data reserves. Because data reserves, that's somebody's money. That's somebody's money. We need better value. We can give a better value. I honestly think so. But how? I don't know. I'm saying this is what I'm seeing. I don't know. Part of the system committee um, is to look at these issues. We want to do it. We want to do it. We do need your input. First of all, we wanted to create awareness. We want to tell you this is what we're busy doing. Please get involved. Tell me, me, I know you're crazy. It's never going to work. Let's come up with a plan. Let's get creative. We want to provide assistance to members who are working in systems. And there are a lot. There are actually a lot of actuaries in this space. Not in this one, not here, but in the other fields. Ultimately, we need to protect the profession's reputation. So that's ultimately what we want to do. We want to put in guidelines for what, what do you need to do. If you're signing something off that's system-related that you don't understand, where do you go to? So the, these are the areas we're currently looking at. So you would be interested to know we're looking at migrations. We need to change the way we're doing migrations in pensions. So we are looking at that. I value your input. One of the first things we're doing, you'll see we have a, a guidance note on testing that should be coming out soon. We want to say if somebody asks you to test something, you don't have to go reinvent the wheel. We've done it already. 
You can just look at what we've done. And then in terms of signing off something, what are you signing off? You are the actuary, you're the evaluator, what are you actually signing off when it comes to a system issue? And what are you signing off if you're signing off the valuation report? Are you signing off anything about systems? Remember the two definitions. This is what we do. This is what we were trained to do. And that's me. I don't know if there are any questions. I welcome your feedback. If you don't want to talk um, like my panel, that's empty. That's fine. We can, have, we can have a chat later. But yes, happy to take any questions. Guys, can we get some questions from the floor? Um, there should be a, oh, there's a question there, right. Hi, it's Ray, Ray Willem. Um, I think what we need to kind of look at who's actually responsible for the industry. And in terms of the Pensions Fund Act, it's the Board of Trustees. In the life environment, you've got boards of directors and shareholders. And I think that um, that's not clear to trustees themselves. And for some reason or other, their customers, the members, are not holding them to account properly. And until we get the board of trustees or systems in the environment uh, that take trustees to task for not doing all the things that you have described, uh, we're not going to solve anything. The actuary at the moment is on the sidelines, and nobody would ever expect the actuary to be responsible for the systems in the pension fund industry or for the data. And in fact, when you sign off evaluation, you, one of the certificates that accompanies the evaluation report is something from the trustees saying that they are happy that the actuary has been given the data that he needs. Yes, the, the actuary is supposed to say that he's happy as well, but the ownership of what you're talking about in terms of the Pension Fund Act is the Board of Trustees. And that's the only way you're going to solve this problem, is that they are held to account uh, like the board, of trust, uh, the board of Directors of an insurance company. So the testing of administration systems, now the, the administrator sells their systems to the Board of Trustees. And it's that, that linkage there uh, that needs to be tightened up. Possibly administrators could employ actuaries to help them do the testing and data migration which they don't do and they don't want to do. But the trustees should be holding them to account on that score. The other thing that I'd like to make a point is that in the defined contribution environment, our three-year cycle is far too long. If you don't catch a problem at the end of the month when the matching of assets and liabilities is done, you're lost. And so we actually need trustees to hold administrators to account that that gets done. And they should be getting signed reports from administrators saying this month, these are how the assets and liabilities were matched in that fund. And then that needs to be monitored very carefully every month during the year. And I think at the point that the financial statements are prepared, we need to get the auditors to confirm that they've checked that this has been done. And also they could possibly comment on how that matching looks. Defined contribution environment is not complicated. It's, it's arithmetic. You know, you need to have so, many, so much assets in, in matching certain liabilities. And one of the questions we face as a profession is that the training that you need to put students and, and, and the work you need to do to become an evaluator is possibly not in, appropriate in a, in a defined contribution environment. It's a unit trust environment. The unit trust doesn't actually need actuaries to make sure things work there. They have systems there that 
allow customers to hold the industry to account. And that's what we need to kind of deal representing the industry. On exemption, the, the, the current system that we have, which is where you look at the rules and you certify that a fund uh, is a, is, could be valuation exempt. That's like asking a doctor to look at somebody and conduct a medical examination and say that that person is healthy because his eyes are open and he can breathe. That's, that's what you're asking a doctor to do, and, and the valuation exemption system is asking us to say that this fund should be valuation exempt because that's all we're doing. We're looking at the eyes and hearing the, the fund breathe. It needs to be done more dynamically every year. We need to actually... Anyway, that's me. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Ray. Can I answer that? Um, I, I, I agree with you. The trustees should be ultimately responsible, but you say... <coughs> something needs to be done. I'm saying who needs to do something? Are you going to train trustees? They, they, what, what are you going to say to the valuator who got kicked out because he wasn't allowed to listen to the administration report? I mean, the trustees literally agreed with the administrator, yes, this valuator should leave the room. So I, I hear you, they should, but they're not. They're not. The, I mean, the big one that I can think of is Dynamique. We had, I think they had five million per trustee that they wanted to find because of a rebuild that Deloitte couldn't do properly. So on the one hand, we're saying, yes, let's rely on the auditors, ask them if they've checked it, but they actually couldn't do the dynamic rebuild to fix it. So it was because of that decisions that the trustees were actually taken on and they were fined, but they didn't pay that fine. They're still fighting it the last time I saw. So I don't know if trustees are actually taking that responsibility. So... I hear you. Maybe you think it's not your responsibility, but if not yours, then whose? Who is going to who? 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 We, we, I think we need to get a system whereby members and their advisors can actually hold trustees to account. I'm, I'm looking at the larger picture, you know, because in fact, what's actually, nobody realizes what, what return they're getting on their investments. Nobody you, knows, yes. And, and that's what we need to do. We need to actually say to members, when you get your benefit statement, you put in so much, and that's the return you got. And that gets measured only on what you put in. It covers all the admin fees as well. In other words, I pay in 10 rand, my employer pays in 10 rand, 3 rand goes to uh, risk costs, that's 17 rand. What return did I get on that? And that's, that's comparable to a unit trust where you actually say, I put that money in and that's what I got at the end. And that, that covers in the admin fees, the investment fees, all the fees that have gone into that process whereby you got your value at the end of the year. But Ray, you've now, been assuming, sorry, that you are getting benefit statements. Well, that's, you know, this is, must be with the, where the system is weak. Is that we're not actually, members are not challenging what's going on. They're not being advised as to how they could challenge. Possibly consultants out there who are too closely linked to administration companies are not telling their members what's going on. Yeah, and it's, the trustees are, off, you know, they just don't realize what they're doing, as you said. They don't know they're in charge and they're probably mm. not being held accountable. Um, thanks. Hi, Fahmida Peterson. So, as I'm a member of um, the board of trustees of a fairly large pension fund, and I mean, I've through the years been consultants to pension funds, actually evaluated to pension funds, etc. And from, from my perspective, trustees of pension funds, despite the enormous fiduciary duty that they have, are probably 
the most passive of fiduciaries that I've come across in South Africa. I mean, I'm also on the board of Stein of Africa for, for what it's worth. So I know how vigilant you need to be. And really being, being a trustee on a pension fund is probably, they're probably the most passive consumers. Um, simply because most of the time they're not, they don't have any expertise in the subject matter that they're dealing with. Um, and okay, the commercial umbrella funds have to have one or two independent trustees on there and typically they're actuaries or pensions lawyers, but generally the level of, of expertise is not where it needs to be to effectively fulfill the duty that they perform. And so the passive consumers of whatever the consultants present, and we've already just had um, the highlighting of sort of consultants being too close to administrators. So to the regulator, in an industry where there's asymmetry of information between the consumer and the provider, you need to have a vigilant regulator. So I'm also on the board of BankMed. And for example, the regulator for medical schemes is far, far more stringent, far more onerous in terms of reporting requirements. They require, I chair the audit committee of BankMed, they require financial statements to be with them within four months of year end. Mm -hmm. You do it because you have to, otherwise you're gonna get a fat fine and you're gonna be embarrassed in the newspapers, etc. Why do pension funds need a year? If you had to produce those Fs within six months, you would ensure that your systems could meet the requirements of producing those Fs within six months. It's, you know, it's, it's as simple as you meet whatever the minimum requirement is. And so I almost think that it's the regulator that needs to give a strong push. And, and I told Alana the same thing at the Pension Lawyers Association conference earlier this year. The, the regulator is the one who actually needs to push in an industry where you have a very passive consumer. And your consumer is actually your trustee as much as it is um, your member trustee. Otherwise, you just are not going to have movement. With regards to auditors, if you see what auditors attest to, they say that it's a fair representation of the financial position of the entity. They do not attest that what is there is true and correct. Actuaries go, and I mean, I did my fair share of valuations at Sunlam. Actuaries go down to the last cent and they want to match. And that is the value that actuaries add. And that is a lot of what is missed by, by boards of trustees. Thank you. Yes, I, I do want to agree with that. So we, we work with a lot of trustees but I agree with you, in this industry, it's extremely, extremely passive. Maybe because they don't have the, the knowledge. You're very lucky if you get an actuary on a board of trustees, and it helps. But normally, yes, normally not. And I think they don't understand it, um, and we're trying to make them accountable, but I, I don't know how, because I don't think they understand it. I, I don't think that that's the solution. I, I like the suggestion that you, you'll push for the for the minimum, so if we change that to say that the, the valuation report needs to go out quicker, then maybe the systems will get better. But then we're going to increase the administration fee and that's exactly what we don't want to do. So I don't, I don't know, money needs to be spent, because you can't fix this without money, I think. Money needs to be spent here. You can't build a new system from scratch without investing something in it. I just don't know where it's going to come from. Thank you, yes. Not a question, just maybe some input. The only reason why I see exemptions is for cost saving. And for a sizable DC fund, it shouldn't be an issue. For smaller ones, they rather reconsider whether they should be standalone or maybe move to a umbrella. 
Just to give you on a section 14 one example, I'm currently busy with a fund where I do the application for exemption, but they were too slow to ask for the next one. So they had a section 14, so I had to sign off. We submitted the application for exemption, but then the, the effective date was like 16 months in the past, so I requested updated values. So I checked the values, I just take the total, it was 7% increase, then I checked the individual values. Some of the values were like as low as 71% of 16 months ago. So I asked them, please explain what's happened. They're charging administration fees X percent of salaries for 16 months on those sort of members. And they basic paid up, I mean I can understand if it's like a paid up fee, but not uh, a, a normal admin fee. And then they came back and said, okay, they're prepared to give 20% discount. I said, I'm not happy. And remember on the document, they only said they will add fund interest. Nothing about they're going to take off expenses. And then in the meantime, the application for exemption came through. What do you think the administrator asked me? Is this not the solution? You don't need to sign off. I said, I'm going to report you to the FSCA. Thank you, yes, that's a typical example of a system that's not working. So maybe they did say, yes, we're not going to deduct fees, although they do, and nobody checked the system. So I, thank you, yes, that's, that's quite disturbing. There's a question here. Maris, Maris, uh, I mean, I agree, with, on the issue of trustees, the problem to me is that trustees are member elected, they are not paid. So to make them accountable for to pay five million is personally I think is not on because who would want to be a trustee in those circumstances? So you have the inherent problem of trustees not being paid and therefore they don't can't take the risk of, of doing that. I agree that the systems is a big problem. I mean, I always been in favour of, of total exemption for all DC funds because like I said, it's really a, you know, it should be a a plain thing, DC fund, there should be absolute matching every month, there shouldn't be a problem. So the big problem is really the systems, correct, not working. Um, just on the issue of, of moving the validation date, we require currently validation to be submitted within a year after of the effective date. To move that to six months won't help. You'll be amazed at how many requests we get for extension of, of the submission date. So by moving the date from 12 to six months won't change a thing, because there'll simply be more, more requests for extensions, which keep my pe people busy. So we've got to fix a number of problems in the industry, I think. Thank you, Marius. I think that's because of the systems. It's not working. DC funds, to do evaluation on a DC fund is actually a lot of work. Because the systems are not matching, the data is not tying up to the financials, it's just a lot of work. So I can understand that people ask for extensions because they can't actually get it done. It makes sense to me, but it's because of the whole process that's not working. In terms of trustees not being paid and not holding them accountable, then what is the solution? Because that's just, that's a problem. Somebody needs to be held accountable. And I, I do still think that money needs to be spent somehow. So we can't run away from the problem anymore. I think these data reserves are just increasing there's no need to clear them, really. So nobody's actually focusing on cleaning the data reserves. It's just a problem that's growing and growing. So I hear you, but the current state, I don't see how a fund can be DC devaluation exempt. I don't see it. 
not on any of the systems, not on any of the fronts that I worked on. I can't see it. Thanks. I mean, if, if systems is the big problem, then we shouldn't we be looking at the Section 13B licensing requirements of administrators then? And, you know, maybe there needs to be a regular validation process. And that, that is, again, the regulator, though. Yes, thank you. Agreed. At the moment, I just read that section as service level agreement, service level agreement, service level agreement. There's nothing in there about the correctness and it's your responsibility and something's going to happen to you if, if something goes wrong. We did see a, a Glen Rand and the failure of Glen Rand was because the FSB decided to go have a look at what was going on there. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen often and it needs to be at such a disastrous point for it to happen. Any more questions? There's a question there. Thanks, Mia. Um, I think the, I wanted to ask you why, have you identified why the systems aren't working? Because I think we can't come up with something new and we can't get the systems to work properly if we don't know why they're not working now. Okay, thank you. As I said, I've never tested a pension fund system, um, but the reconstructions that we do, we do get involved and we see what's going on on the systems. Um, one thing that somebody mentioned in the committee she said to me that the systems work like a payroll system, which then the light went on, because it does. And that's not right. That's not how a DC system is supposed to work. So there's a little bit of rework needed there. One of the big systems in the industry that is currently being used, for example, has a general field that says single premium investment, and that can be anything. And the word premium is in there. Single premium investment. You know which system I'm talking about. You can't make sense of it. How, how did we allow to, and I mean, it's been going on for years, and we've just allowed it. I mean, it creates such a problem to actually understand what's going on there if you pull a report. So rework is needed. There are some systems that are better than others, but in general, it's, it's, I think they're out of date. Most of these systems, everything that I've seen are out of date. And I am scared for the move to umbrellas because... You can't, it's not working. Just the risk benefits on Umbrella to actually manage that on these systems that we currently have is not going to work. Unfortunately, money needs to be spent to investigate the issue, what's going on, to get somebody in to test it, to actually come up with a solution, and nobody wants to spend that money. Just, sorry, just on that, we absolutely need employer buy-in. You yes. can't expect trustees, the number of trustees I try to contact, I try to enforce some type of behavior, I try to get them to check things. It is the last thing on their priority list is the retirement fund. The employer trustees are busy. They are high up in that company. They are not interested in what's happening in the retirement fund. That's, that's the kind of feedback I'm getting. So it, it's just non-response. So either we need to have um, actuaries who act as trustees or and, and are actually paid to be trustees, or somehow we need to bring in more independent trustees or get employer buy-in, because there's no reward at the moment. Yeah, agreed. Thank you. Thanks, Chair. One more question. Hi, I'm Mike Walker. Um, just to, I was going to pick up on Lucia's point, I was going to also mention about the employer. If the employer is not involved in the same way as he was in a defined benefit fund, then I think that's, that's really the problem. Now, sure, uh, half the trustees are member-elected and they're not paid, but then half the trustees are appointed by the employer, but then the employer probably just appoints them because he has to, but he's not taking any liability for the fund if something goes wrong. So maybe there needs to be a change back to the old DB type setup where 
if something, I mean, after all, these are his employees. If something, a disaster occurs, mm. the employer has to stump up the money. And if, if that was the case, then the employer trustees would be far more focused on how good the admin system was and how well it had been tested and so on. So possibly that's, 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 that would be the incentive that would be required. Thank you, yes, and to that point, then I would be the first employer to move out of the umbrella environment I'm currently in. I agree, something needs to be done, but I don't know how that's gonna go down with the employers. I will certainly move out of an umbrella. Thank you, thank you, Mia, thank you, Mike. Um, I think for me, uh, a bigger issue, I mean, we've got a major sort of system issue, but a bigger issue is that members actually don't have a clue as to what it is they're likely to retire on. And so, there is no real incentive for members to actually play an active role. You know, they don't actually know what it is that their fund credit or their pot of money is buying. Um, if you tell a member that you're on track for a pension of 6,000 rand a month and the member's expenses are sitting at closer to 40 or 50, uh, you can rest assured that the member is going to start asking some serious questions and playing a deeper role in terms of the underlying system and the retirement fund and who's managing that fund and how those assets are being managed. So I actually think that you know, when we move from defined benefit arrangements with that, that responsibility actually sat with the employers, moved that responsibility across to the members. We didn't actually inform members what it is that they were responsible for, and I don't think we've given members enough information to give them a sense as to what it is that this thing is all about. Uh, ultimately, this is being treated like a unit trust arrangement uh, or a savings pot. Um, I think the, the reality is that you know, with increased longevity, uh, increased um, uh, levels of volatility in investment markets, lower returns going forward, members actually have no clue as to what it is that they're actually in, in store for. Um, many employers that actually were sitting in that boat got themselves out of those arrangements uh, for the very reason that they became too costly to run. Uh, we're now in an environment where that's all sitting with the members, but the information that members are being given is not nearly as adequate as needed so as for them to make informed decisions around this particular issue, and in turn, um, play a more active role in terms of the management of those particular retirement schemes and the administration associated with that. So I think that there is also a responsibility to communicate the right messages to members so that they actually do understand what it is that they're in for. But of course, those folk that are responsible for communicating are also the people that are administering the record. So, so there's a bit of a natural conflict. Anyway, let me conclude the session. I'd like to thank uh, Mia for her efforts in this particular regard. This is clearly a big issue and very topical issue amongst all of you. Um, but uh, on behalf of the Retirement Matters Committee of the Actuarial Society, I'd like to thank you for your efforts, your, the time that you spent in putting us together and, 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 and the presentation that you gave. Thanks very much, Mia. Thanks.